Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. up you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to part two of child music number 46 i'm your host al needham and here i am with sarah b and david stubbs me dears we've already discussed in the previous part about 1987 late 1987 and yeah we we were just basically poking at it with a stick like it was Mm. a, a, a something that was shifting about in a bin bag. <laughs> yes. It's safe to say we're not really looking forward to this, are we? It's going to be bracing in some ways, mm. grimly, yeah. fascinatingly duff in certain respects, but sometimes the crap is more interesting than the, the chocolate. Yes. <laughs> Unless you're eating it, of course. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Well, well, as I've said, you know, I uh, I kind of go into these things uh, with, with a sort of optimistic ear, and uh, I'm ready to hear... Hear a good thing. Because out of the three of us, Sarah, you're probably going to be the one who was most likely to have watched this when it came out originally. Well, yeah, I probably would have done. Yeah, yeah David would have been in the pub. I'd have been at the mm. bingo hall. You, yeah. you, you, you're nine years old. This is this is your time, isn't it, it pop-wise? It is, yeah. Which is not to say that everything about this time is going to give me the kind of Proustian rush. Mm. It's weird, the stuff that gives you the sort of brain tingle of, like... Oh my god, I remember, you know, the stuff that kind of mm. hot wires your memories and and mm. gives you that sort of weird jolt back into the past is it's never what you think it's mm. going to be. Mm. All right then, Paul Craig's youngsters, it's time to go way back to December of 1987. Always remember, we may code down your favorite band or artist, but we never forget They've been on top of the pops more than we have. the last time of the boss before Christmas in the street. It's 7pm on Thursday, December the 17th, 1987. And as the wizard by Paul Howcastle dies off and a sample of When I Think of You by Janet Jackson kicks in, we are confronted by our hosts in suits, which, as we'll see, will be a reoccurring theme of the night. Those hosts are Gary Davis and Mike Reed. 
Davis is still holding down the lunchtime slot on Radio 1, as he has since 1984 and would do until 1992. But he's also become the de facto bull of the woods on top of the pops. Not only is this his 23rd Top of the Pops presenting gig this year, but he's also presenting next week's Christmas Day special with Mike Smith. He's also started to hold down a very prestigious Top of the Pops related side job, of which we'll talk about in greater detail in a bit. Reed, on the other hand, is on a downward spiral at the BBC. His main TV presenting job at Saturday Superstore finished when the show was replaced this year by Going Live and his Radio 1 activities are now restricted to the weekend where he presents Singled Out, the formerly titled Round Table on Friday evenings, the Saturday mid-morning slot and Sunday Oldies, the replacement for Jimmy Savile's old record club on Sunday afternoons. He's still busy on the BBC though. Last week, don't you know, he was a panellist on Call My Bluff. How have the mighty fallen? Uh, it's, it's really kind of annoying because if you think it's only about two or three years since he tried to get relaxed, um, banned. Mm. And you just think, and now he's trying to sort of rock up in his shades or whatever, you know, like he's still kind of Mr. With It or whatever. It's just like, fuck off to Radio 2, you little tit. You know, you're, mm. you're Pete Murray now. How dare yes. you loiter around the kind of pop scene, you know, after you've, you know, after your censorious um, drivel. There's a 10-year gap between Davis, uh, who was 30 last week, and Reed, who is now 40. And, and you can really tell, can't you? Yeah. I'll tell you they look like. They look like um, around about Series 5 of Minder, when it was starting to get a bit <laughs> less violent, regrettably. And um, mm. they look like a kind of couple of villains, you know, but slightly kind of upmarket villains, you know. Like, so you've got, like, Mike Reed, who's the brains of the outfit, um, you know, and sort of dealing in antiques. Whatever, and he's just rolled up on the manor, and Gary Davis is his kind of dubious muscle, you know. He's yeah. really no match for uh, Dennis he's Waterman. Got, got a job lot of filofaxes to get yeah, rid of. Exactly, they're yes. Bit, they're a bit okay. This episode is right in itself already. Uh, yeah. Yes. The more episodes of Top of the Pops that I watch again now, as I seem to be doomed to do, the, the more you just, I just see this. The darkness, there's such a black hole of ego and kind of seething. Uh, resentment and stuff in in the presenters you know it's mm. like I, I kind of want to read an oral history of the entire kind of all yeah. the kind of power struggles and everything else except that I really don't <laughs> there's just a darkness about it mm. you can see that some of them there's just this kind of boiling resentment that they're not on the stage themselves mm. and just the kind of you know false chumminess between them and you yeah. know that actually in it, they're, they're all kind of trying to stab each other in the back I don't know I, I feel like maybe there's probably a BBC drama to be made out of this mm. and uh, I which I would not watch because I've seen enough of it no. I think that part of that sense of the void is the void you sense in their knowledge it goes back to really kind of Savile and David Travis, the no, 60s, early 70s, the fact that you just get the impression for them, this is just showbiz and it's all kind of interchangeable, really. It could be Call My Bluff, it could be Top Gear or whatever. It's just having these kind of slick presentational skills. And, and by and large, you know, the, the, these people, you don't really feel there's any actual connection between them and the music that they're presenting and fronting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's almost 
it's, it's quite naked, really. You know, their sheer lack of knowledge, the lack of interest. Um, you, you know, like people like David Travis, who famously, you know, didn't even own a record player. You know, you just don't get the impression that they have any engagement with the music, what's happening in the music. Wouldn't ever pick up a copy of um, a music paper. They probably wouldn't even pick up smash hits. Um, you know, that does change later on. You know, even if it's someone like Janice Long or whatever, you know, who, and obviously John Peel, yeah. you know, there's a genuine engagement with the music that's palpable. Mm. I totally agree with you on the fact that the the, the presenters and the music are, are drifting apart. But this would be the point, and probably the first point since the early 70s, where the presenters are dressing exactly like the pop stars. Yeah, yeah. Because it's an extraordinarily sooty episode of Top of the Pops, isn't it, we're going to watch? It's it so is, sooty. It, 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 it's yeah. so sooty. It's like, because you you, uh, you put in the notes, like, everyone's in suits. And, and then I realised that you weren't kidding. Literally, everyone's mm. in suits. Even even the women. It's like, it's, it's like you're watching a dinner dance of a fucking merchant banking organisation <laughs> where, uh, where the managers are allowed to go up on the stage. And then... All the kids are, are like the office juniors, and they're in suits as well. And the only difference is, is, is one load of suits are about five hundred pounds more expensive than the other load of suits. Mm. And, and yet, history just, uh, you know, uh, from from this perspective, that it's all just one big suity sludge. Yeah, and you know, all all this all the same. Uh, yeah. no, you know, there's no there's no real kind of like yeah, that's the more expensive one. It's like no, they all just look and they're they're boxy and Ooh. voluminous. Oh, and flappy awful. and all the things that suits should not be. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of throwback, really, to, I mean, the ironic wearing of suits, whatever, and suit and ties. When I was at university in the early 80s, I, I wore a shirt and tie every mm. day, but it was in a sort of, it was in a kind of radical sense. It was almost like, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was a rejection of the sort of hoary sort of medallion man type sort of open neck shirt sort of rock look or whatever, which I just thought would become a sort of hoary cliche or whatever. Mm. And all the kind of really smart bands, your wires, even public image, people like that, they all wore, you know, they wore suits or they wore, you know, shirts and ties or whatever. Um, as if to say, look, we, we, we mean business, you know, we're serious. Then later when you've got the, go- the zoot suit becomes a big thing, you know, Blue Ron and yeah. the Turk and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, you've got, you've got really kind of boxy suits and whatever. And then it's kind of a sort of post-neuromantic thing, you know, referring back to a classier, more stylistic age. And I think that the kind of prevalence of suits throughout this episode is a slightly sort of tired extension of that particular idea. It's almost mm. like a sort of forlornness that kind of, uh, overarches this entire episode about um, there was once a more gracious age of soul and style and finesse, mm. and we've just lost all of that. We're just these pasty white inferiors. Yeah. It just kind of manifests this sort of conservative default in this form, doesn't it? Mm. Um, as opposed to, you know, nothing against a good suit. These are, you know, but these are, none of these... I would say, are, are good suits. No, no, they're horrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like the bands are terrified that they think they're going to pitch up at a, a BBC Studios and be turned away <laughs> for not wearing Italian-style shoes. Yeah. So, oh, we, we better not wear our jeans. We might not get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. presenting pool at Top of the Pops for 1987, apart from these two, were Mike Smith, Steve Wright, Janice Long, John Peel, Simon Mayo... Peter Powell, still, and Simon Bates, still. Wow. Fucking hell. You can't get shot of Simon Bates, can you? I don't think Bates would have worn a suit. I think he'd like hold fast to sports casual, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is worse. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but yeah, Mike Reed here, kind of, uh, I was trying to think of what his Reservoir Dog name would be. 
and uh, <laughs> it was you know because he he does look uh, you know he looks quite sort of funereal or, or gangstery in, in yeah. you know in in <laughs> in his own way. Um, but I don't know, Mister Beige, mm. maybe Mister Tope. Mister Tope, yes, Mister Tope. <laughs> and uh, they're still doing the um, the the two presenter thing. Uh, mm. But they were starting to move away from it, though, in 1987. Sometimes they'd let Davis or Smith present on their own, just like in the good old days. Uh, but they, they soon went back to the two-presenter thing by uh, by the end of this year. And they'd go through 1988 doing the same thing. And they only started to phase it out in April of 1989. Mm. So, yeah. I think it was kind of the buddy-buddy year in some ways, wasn't it? Yeah. Was chaps hanging out together with the you know, with the sleeves of their suit jackets folded right up to their elbows and stuff like mm. that. A bit of a kind of Miami Vice thing was happening in films. There's probably a, yes. a thesis to be written That's about what this. they're going for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the buddy-buddy sort of thing you had about 87. Yeah. They are not buddy-buddy, are they? You know, they... Oh, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm projecting, but it's like, I just think they fucking hate each mm. other, don't they? Like, it should be me up there on my own carrying this entire thing. Yeah, well, in the case of Reed, that you can believe that. But yeah. as the episodes of chart music roll on, me dears, we're we're kind of groping towards the conclusion that Gary Davis was sort of all right, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, Sarah, you were there the last Gary Davis one we did in 1991. Mm. He started to look a little behind the times, but he was still hanging in there. He could still hang tough, if you will. Oh yeah, he's definitely. Well, you've, you've put him next to Mike Reed, obviously. If Mike <laughs> Reed is going to make anyone look good. Um, but yeah, he's all right. The thing is that it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion, isn't it? With with uh, top of the pops presenters, like who makes you feel the least creeped out and the least mm. kind of oily, you yeah. know? And and Gary Davis, I think, a relatively low kind of oil quotient, mm. you know, mm. um, not literally, yeah. but I mean, he's got and he's got, you know, his hair's nice. Yeah. He can I- carry off the kind of. He's got on here. He's got like a sort of self-striped jacket and open collared horrible shirt with mauve stripes uh, mm. but you know it's 1987 what are you going to do you can't yeah. you know <laughs> it's it's all right it's like but the others the others do actually go into the negative whatever and with with gary davis he's just about you know it's, it's almost like in the bank account of his charm has about three pounds fifty in it something like that and it's better <laughs> than just being kind of horrendously overdrawn as it were gary davis has also become the voice of the charts mm. the unveiling of the new top 40 happened on his show up until october of this year and then it switched to sunday for the uh, for the big reveal which was a huge mistake because that tuesday dinner time trek to save it or spend it to hear the new chart on the radio behind the till was an absolute integral part of the week when I was at school. And, you know, it upsets me to think that pop-crazed youngsters who were a few years younger than me were missing out on that thrill. Mm. Mm. But having it on Sunday made it a bit more unified, didn't it, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. It was something to do on yeah. Sundays as well. Yeah, it took the edge off the whole kind of back-to-school dread as well. Something to talk about on Monday morning, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Hi, good evening. Welcome to the last time of the box before Christmas. In the studio tonight, we have the Pogues and Kirsty McCall, Simply Red and the Pet Shop Boys. And up in 11 places to this week's number 21, Wet 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 with Angel Eyes. Yay!
Davis in a horrific late 80s striped mauve suit with billowy sleeves and a purple and white striped shirt opened at the throat welcomes us to the last Top of the Pops before Christmas as he stands on a rostrum with some of the kids. He partially spoiler alerts the show and then hands off to Reed in a black suit who introduces Angel Eyes Home and Away by Wet Wet Wet. Formed in Clydebank in 1982, Vortex Motion was a punk covers group fronted by a trainee painter and decorator called Mark McLachlan, who changed their name to Wet 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 soon after in tribute to the scritty politi song Getting, Having and Holding, their style from Clash covers to Soul covers, and the lead singer's name to Marty Pello. After linking up with a local club owner and setting up their own independent label, funded by a benefit gig by New Order, they released a demo in 1985, sparking a feeding frenzy amongst nine different British record labels. They eventually settled for Phonogram after adding a clause to their contract that the label had to deliver a crate of whiskers every month for the manager's cat. However... After getting through two producers and being unsatisfied with both, the band were flown to Memphis, where they were linked up with their original choice, Willie Mitchell, the producer of Al Green, Ann Peebles and Syl Johnson in the early 1970s. But when Phonogram turned those demos down, they went back to their original material, did some overdubs and finally put out their debut single, Wishing I Was Lucky, which got all the way to number six in June of 1987, helped by their supporting of Lionel Richie on his European tour. This is the follow-up to Sweet Little Mystery, which got to number five in September of this year, and is a remake of the song Home and Away, which featured in a compilation tape of Scottish artists a year ago. It's also causing ructions with Chris Difford, as the lyrics lift an entire verse from the 1985 Squeeze single Heartbreaking World. And it's up 11 places this week, from number 32 to number 21. Now then, me dears, if if you'd have told me back then that there was this band that had just come out who were all working class and they came from Glasgow and they were massively into soul and they'd actually gone to Memphis to sit at the feet of the Masters, oh, fucking hell, I would have ran through the windows of the local record shop to get their latest release and then I would have gone, oh, it's wet, wet, wet. Mm. Mm. And, and then I would have gone, oh, at least it's not Primal Scream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wet, wet, wet. The very nadir of whitey boy Brit soul. Uh, um, do Johnny Hates Jazz count? No. Nah. nah. Mm. Probably they are then. I don't know. But I, in some ways, I can't, I can't blame them. It's like, you know, there is a truckload of money available for someone who can do this kind of very safe and dull kind of non-dimensional take on soul stuff. I, but it's very drippy. It is dreadful, really. I mean, it's it's quite telling in a way that they um, took their inspiration from Scruti Politi because this is almost like a kind of homeopathic um, sort of extraction, really, from what Scruti were about and their relationship between black and white music and everything like that. I mean, it's just straightforward 
dull veneration of um, black authenticity. This was such a common thing at the time. Yeah, of course, Willie Mitchell, Al Green connection, as if somehow by osmosis that some yeah. of all of that will rub off on them. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, and I mean, there was just a lot of this in the culture at the time, a lot of people venerating sort of stacks and things like that, the worthy musics of like the mm. 60s or the 50s, or whatever, but, you know, uh, but very frightened of contemporary black music, you know, they weren't ever going to sort of listen to yeah. Eric Bean Rakim or anything like that. No. You know, this is like music that's been, you know, there has to be sort of black music has to have like aged respectively, it has to be this kind of 30, 40 year gap, you know, before it can mm. be sort of properly venerated or whatever. It's, I find, you know, I just find rather pretty sick making at the time. I mean, look, Wet, wet, wet were not the young gods, and therefore, I mean, that was sort of like made them a complete no-no. Marty Pello, I mean, there was something utterly repulsive about him. I mean, he every time he sent me a photo, he's, it was a bit like he was, like, he was kind of like the pretty Patel of white soul, really. And so, you know, the, the face <laughs> is kind of um, it's twisted into like that kind of perma smirk. You know, I'm sure that like you know, there must be at the time, you know, somebody might have said to um, Marty Pello, "You think it's funny then? Um, your complete artistic poverty." But no, it was just that's just his face, um, yeah. and he just seemed like the most awful, vile, smug tosser. You know, you can have this. You can just imagine a scene like in Hell where everyone, all these kind of things, they're, they're in a kind of vast sort of lake of, like, Satan's boiling snot or something like that, you know, for eternity. <laughs> Ed Sheeran is up to his neck in it. And Robbie Williams, mysteriously, is only up to his waist in it. So Ed Sheeran <laughs> says to Robbie Williams, why are you only up to your waist, man? You know, you're Robbie Williams. And says, I'm standing on Marty Pello's shoulders. <laughs> oh. That's what I reckon. Sorry, so. But um, the strange thing was, then he got into heroin and he seemed quite sort of human after that. It had a kind mm. of, you know, sort of positive effect on him. But, Good um, career move. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He just seemed, he seemed like, you're not such a bad old stick, really. Oh, yeah, you're showing oh, your human hell. side there. Yeah, yeah he, he only had to, like, go through this horrendous experience and almost die to uh, win your respect. Indeed. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't suppose that had any particular bearing on anything at all. But, I mean, after that, you know, I did think, OK, well, perhaps he just happened to have one of those faces and uh, I've been a bit sort of been a bit unfair to you, in, in you know, in my yeah. kind of earlier whatever. But this is an utterly, utterly dreadful, insipid, sort of yeah. inferiority, conflective, white inferiority complex fair. And as to the suits, I mean, the guys, the non-pello oh. guys... They just, I mean, the suits are wearing them, you know, they just look like kind of very sort of reluctant um, wear a suit once a year at a wedding type suit mm. wearers. Um, yeah. I mean, let's get it out of the way straight away. I hated Marty Pello for so mm. long for mm. fucking up stars in their eyes. Because mm. ah. you watch stars in their eyes and it'd be fucking brilliant. And then all of a sudden some twat would turn up and go, oh, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Marty Pello. And you just go, oh, fucking hell, he's won then, Ante. <laughs> All you got to do is go out there, have your hair slicked back, and smile, and you've won stars in their eyes. And it just fucking ruined it, man. Yeah, there should have been yeah. a ban, a blanket ban on people trying to be Marty Pello on stars in their eyes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, this yeah. song, I mean, God. they've tried to remake true by spandar ballet exactly yes yeah. yes 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 that's exactly what i was thinking yeah, yeah. an old oh dear haven't they done a poor job readers uh. <laughs> it's like true if you left it out in the rain mm. yeah like it's i, I mean i went because i i realized this for the first time and i went and listened to true after after this and it was like listening to wagner or something I mean, it's like <laughs> it's like yeah. this kind of great big glitz ass chocolate taj mahal dusted in gold dust <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. compared to it's it's a yeah 
It's. I mean, if you're going to do that thing, you might as well go for it. And they have not no. gone for it. No, they've taken that through to even drearier places than you thought were even conceivable. I mean, it's quite an impressive feat in some ways. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's earnest, isn't it? That's what the song should have been called. Yeah, I don't know. It's very sort of. It's it's kind of studied, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of the problem with if you. Uh, you know, you need to sort of absorb influence in a particular way and just allow it to work through you as opposed to kind of trying too hard to sort of nail what, you know, the, the essence of a thing because that's, you know, I think this is evidence that that doesn't really work. Mm. It just screams, we're not worthy, we're not worthy of real, authentic, black-type music. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, indeed, you're proving the point and we'll get the fuck off the stage. It's a very poor third to Angelized by ABBA and Angelized mm. by, Roxy by Roxy Music. Yeah, and yeah. In the Premier League of songs called Angelized, this would be struggling to, to get a spot in the Intertoto Cup. Yeah. We'd be struggling to draw with Arsenal. <laughs> it's a fucking stupid song title anyway, because if an angel came down, their eyes would be like the, the last thing you noticed mm. about them. Mm. It's the fucking big wings. Exactly, yeah. If an angel came down now, yeah, yeah you, you wouldn't go, oh, look at the right. eyes on that. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like you might as well call it angel arse, really. Thinking, <laughs> yes, look angel arse. celestial buttocks on that. You know, mm. it wouldn't really be a first uppermost in your mind, would it? That's absolutely yeah. true. That's yeah. the weird Al Yankovic take on this, <laughs> if if he were to uh, find a reason to, to do that. Mm. I mean, I feel like I'm doing the, uh, you know, the old Jewish joke uh, about the bad restaurant. You know, oh, the food here is terrible. I know, and such small portions. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's there's so much space. There's too much space mm. in, in this. And it's probably the least of its uh, of its faults. But there's... There's just too much. It's so sort of ploddy and over-aerated. Uh, the bridge has got these little kind of string stabs. Yeah. Which are just really, they're just really annoying. They're just, what are they doing there? It's like, David, as a fellow yep. Londoner, I don't know if you um, you know the, the parakeets. Oh, yeah. That have now taken over the green parakeets, which, I mean, they started off somewhere in South London. Now they've basically colonised everywhere, yeah. which is incredible. Um, I see them uh, where I am sort of in East London like a couple of times a day. Mm. They're amazing things. They're sort of this incredibly bright green that you can't believe exists in nature. When you when you see them, they sort of flock past you. And it's like something out of Avatar. Mm. You know, there's these kind of amazing Japanese paper planes. But they're so beautiful and incredible. But the sound they make is horrible. It's like, it's like being stabbed in the ear with a novelty shrieking machine. Yeah. And that's what these little... That's what, that's what it reminded me of, is these kind of crazy tropical birds that we now have buggering up our ears in London. Yeah. Lyric-wise, I mean, yes, they did lift an entire verse off a squeeze song, which mm. is unbelievable, but everybody forgets the fact that they also rip off Grease Lightning as well. Mm. You know, it goes on about being automatic, then systematic, mm. and he doesn't have the bollocks to say he's also dramatic. <laughs> so, yeah, shame on you, Martin. I mean, one development in Top of the Pops that we notice here is that uh, there's a cameraman right at the front uh, and he's got one of those handheld jobs which looks pretty light. So uh, that must be a relief for the kids. Yeah. You suddenly haven't got this enormous Dalek-like thing charging towards you (laughs) and just bowling you over. (laughs) And, you know, we're going to see that cameraman later on. He gets quite involved, doesn't he? Mm. Mm. I mean, nowadays, uh, we're we're, we're almost seen as a one-hit wonder band, aren't they? They're the love-is-all-around hit makers. Mm. 
So it's important for us to remember that they were pretty massive in 1987, weren't they? I mean, yeah, they're huge. Smash Hits readers have just voted them the best newcomers of the year. And it's like Pop was an empty suit at this point, and somebody had to fill it. Mm. Well, yeah, they were unbelievably massive. And the thing is that I, I, I know I always kind of try to let people off in some ways, but. That is a thing, is that they are kind of on the cusp of being really, really huge. And that's got to freak you out. Mm. When I realised it was wet, 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 and I was like, oh, God, Marty Pello with that terrible smug, that terrible smug grin that he has. But I think he hadn't quite developed it yet. And he actually looks a bit freaked most Mm. of the time. It's a very stiff, they're all quite sort of stiff. I mean, the, the rest of the band look quite bored. Yeah. And he looks a little bit, he looks... It always strikes me, I know this is a thing I've said before, but it always strikes me how young people are when they go on top of the box. It's like, fucking hell, how old is he? Like 21 or whatever. And it's like, yeah, he looks a little bit like, oh, what am I doing? And there's that kind of, you know, he looks quite awkward. But yes, he does have that sort of smirky. I think he developed that. He he developed a certain confidence and then went way over with it Mm. and just had that. uh, It's like um, Adam Levine out of Maroon 5, who just has such a bad case of smug face i mean he's not developed that male stripper here yet he's not he's not gone full <laughs> nino ferretto yet has he he's got this it's almost a bit permy is here mm. and it's it's sort of scraped back and he's got he's got two earrings as well the hoopy ones yeah one in each so ear. i don't know what look he's going for there permy pirate look. that is the typical spiky gelled lab barnet that endured mm throughout the late 80s and into the early 90s yeah because every lad i went to school with had that hair so mm. it, yeah which is which is weird actually they properly like count the spikes gelled do which didn't <laughs> look didn't look good on anyone and to to use the parlance of the girls at my college at the time marty pello is wicked lush that that is the thing as well isn't it is that he was sort of pretty and it's like you're never going to be taken seriously if you're you're sort of that kind of obviously Mm. pretty i feel like we should give him credit for actually being able to sing i know it's a low bar but he can sing he's got a good voice it's just that he's not very good on the high notes though No, uh, but he he kind of can sing he has got the pipes but it's quite Mm. it's quite affected and sort of self-conscious and there's too many kind of Mm. flourishes and and hiccups and swoops you know like you don't have to Mm. prove that you can sing you can just sing i just don't think it's important to be able to sing at all (laughs) ralph hutter marquis smith etc etc well you can you know there's yeah of course there's there's (laughs) oh no i'm not even gonna there's got to be something else now there's got to be something else i mean just the sort of technical capability is is just you know it's not enough yeah yeah it's no good to just just flash your melisma about but i mean here's the thing about pop crumpet of of 1987 (laughs) i mean there weren't boys were they i mean marty pello's quite young on here but he's he looks kind of grown up i mean let's go through the most fanciable male list in the smash it's readers poll it goes like this philip schofield morton harkett Mm -hmm. bruce willis Mm -hmm. marty pello Mm -hmm. john taylor Mm -hmm. tom cruise Mm -hmm. michael jackson Mm -hmm. john bon jove Mm -hmm. George Michael mm. and Michael J. Fox. I mean, you know, compared to what's coming down the line in a couple of years' time, none of those people are going to have any problems buying some cans and a packet of Benson and Edges from the off-license, <laughs> are they? That's true. I mean, even Bross, who was seen as a complete sea change, you, you wouldn't call them boys so much. You know, you were encouraged to drop the boy, remember? I'm your man. Mm. Yes, mm. I am. Who were? <laughs> Marty Pella's been pegged as crumpet, but he's still got to do all that other boring pop star stuff at the mm. same time. Mm. Yeah. 
There's no dance routines going on here, thank fuck. God. Yeah, how, what would what would Pan's people do with angel eyes? They'd float about, wouldn't they? Mm. I suspect that wings would feature somewhere as well in the. Um, mm. Oh God! It, it would have been great if they'd got them in the uh, you know the the harnesses. What do you call mm. them? You know when they yeah uh, yeah so they'd yeah. been descending yes yeah, so with little sort of hoops attached to their heads and hands <laughs> clasped in prayer and etc cetera, etc cetera. eyes of course you know to the fore. Well, that's the thing yeah. is that I think I feel like there's a missed opportunity here. They could have uh, they could have Christmased Christmased it up a bit. But, uh, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I mean, it is the week before Christmas, but I know they've not gone full on with Christmas, are they? No, it, where's the fucking tinsel? Hello, my darlings. It's me, Anna Man, actress, singer, welder. Gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Man, where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors on The Great Big Owl. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's like there's no that you yeah. would not know if you watch this with the sound off. You would not know that this was the last top of the pops before Christmas. And that's good. I like mm, that. Yeah, I mean that's actually one thing that commends this episode. I like it mm. when top of the pops does Christmas, though. It's like what's what's not to like? I mean, not that mm. I'm I'm not the most Christmassy person, but if you're gonna, you know, it, it's you can't really avoid it. You might as well stick your head in it and you know get some get some glitter going. It's only December the seventeenth. It's not proper Christmas yet. Mm. When did Christmas start in night? Because you know, obviously, uh, what happens now is uh, all the adverts start in uh, late October, and you go fuck mm. off. It's not Christmas yeah. yet, and then you go fuck off. No, it's still not Christmas. Still not Christmas. Yeah. Still not Christmas. And then first of December, you're like, oh fuck, I haven't done anything for Christmas, mm. and now and now I'm fucked. Um, <laughs> I've bought nothing. I I don't know how how to get a fucking turkey from where uh, but yeah it's i think in 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 1987 christmas probably didn't start until uh i don't know like the 15th or something mm. do you reckon yeah we'll put it about that the earliest ever sort of oh my god it's christmas soon for me was july and this was at ipc um magazines in the building there and in the lift <laughs> you know, um, Buster Merrifield out of Only Fools and Horses, you know, oh. and he was dressed up as Santa Claus. So they had such long lead times that were already doing the shoot for their Christmas edition, one of these women's magazines. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, go. yeah, that is a thing in, in journalism where, yeah, Christmas in July, and there's a load of like PR events and stuff that actually just are called Christmas in July. 
And, you know, and so you deal with that in the summer and then you forget all about it until until you're forced to remember it in October. But, yeah, um, yeah fair enough, I suppose. But it did weird me out a bit. I was like, where, where's the Christmas shit? I don't understand. So the following week, Angel Eyes jumped eight places to number 13 and two weeks later it got to number five. And when the single was released in America, Chris Difford was finally given a co-writing credit. The follow-up, Temptation, only got to number 12, but the next single, a cover of The Beatles with a little help from my friends, got to number one for four weeks in May of 1988. That's the enemy's fault, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sergeant Pepper knew my father. Yes, yes. Yeah. They go on to score two more number ones with Good Night Girl in 1992 and Love Is All Around in 1994. But the band split up in 1999 when the drummer realised he wasn't getting paid as much as everyone else. And Marty Pello checked into the Priory to sort out his addictions where he ran into... Chris Difford of Squeeze. Yes. Oh, awkward. <laughs> as he began his solo career. Isn't that it nice? It is nice. It is, is it? legitimately nice. This is what heroin does, you know. You just realise that we're all human yeah. and we should just be kind to one another. Is that what the, that what the two-page Look. advert said in the middle of the Heroin brings, brings yeah. people together. Well, yeah. yeah. This next song was a hit way, way back for Brenda Lee. It was a hit again for the Jets, and now for Comic Relief, it's a hit for Mel and Kim. Here we all go, rocking around the Christmas tree. Read, standing in front of a cluster of kids who aren't particularly asked about being around a Radio 1 DJ, or at least this one, gives us a potted history of the next single. It's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Mel and Kim. Or to give the full title, Comic Relief presents Mel and Kim, performed by Kim Wilde and Mel Smith. Formed in London by Richard Curtis and Lenny Emery in 1985, Comic Relief was officially launched on Christmas Day of that year from a refugee camp in Sudan on a festive episode of Noel Edmonds' The Late Late Breakfast Show. Something else to blame Noel for there. Their debut single, Living Doll by Cliff Richard and the Young Ones, entered the charts at number four in March of 1986 and got to number one for three weeks. This is the follow-up, a cover of the 1958 Brenda Lee single, which got to number six in January of 1963 and was last seen in the charts when the Jets got it to number 63 in December of 1983 and it teams Kim Wilde, whose last single, Say You Really Want Me, got to number 29 in August of this year, and Mel Smith, formerly of Not The Nine O'Clock News, currently of Alas Smith and Jones, whose 1980 single Gob On You sadly <laughs> failed to chart. It's moved up this week from number 13 to number 6, and we're being treated to the video sans fridge-related palaver. 
Mm. Mm. <sighs> yeah, maybe not. Just... Here's your Christmassiness, Sarah. Yeah, I know. I'd, uh, careful what you wish for, right? Mm. I was going to say this is sort of too wet, but it's not. It's kind of too dry and crummy. It's like a sort of, it's like a cake that you've that you've left in for a bit too long. And, yeah. and you get it out and it's like, oh, this was going to be festive, but but now, look, it's just a bit sad and it's it's kind of, you know, it's just got to go straight in the bin. I mean, it does combine the two obsessions of the, the pop world of the late 80s, mm. which is covering old shit and doing stuff for charity. Yeah. I mean, wet, dry, I think it's too shit is probably the problem. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, oh, it's, it, 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 it's awful. Um, I mean, Mel Smith is not incapable of mirth. Kim Wilde is lovely yeah. and done some lovely pop. Kim Wilde is it's lovely. Just the, I should say. It's, it's not the people in. It's not the people involved. It's it, it's it's the concept of it. Mm. It's just dreadful. It's just who on earth would you know charity notwithstanding. I mean, who would buy this? It, 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 you can't possibly be a fan of music and like this. You can't possibly be a fan of comedy and like this. It's and I mean, music and comedy quite often is at, at the very best. It's a bit like mixing ice cream and gravy. Mm. Um, but it's um, it's. It seems to be a kind of degeneration, really. I mean, of I mean, shortly after this thing, you had the Hail and Pace doing the stonk. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that was the next kind of contribution. No, there's, there's like a further sort of rapid degeneration, you know. So he's starting off with his kind of, you know, you, you know, you got the kind of, you know, the punkish spirit of things kind of translating into comedy, and you got the kind of the young ones who. You know, and it's passable the thing with Cliff Richard or whatever. It's mm. you know quite a kind of sort of sporting little um, liaison thing going on there. But this is just, it's, I mean, the it's, idea, David, of um, of the young ones and Cliff Richard actually mm. getting together on something that was, you know, that was something that was celebrated mm. throughout the nation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say that was actually funny. But but this nobody really wanted Mel Smith and Kim Wilde together. Getting Kim Wilde and Mel Smith together just because they've got the same name as the greatest ever Stock Aitken Walkman act mm. is, is not really of the same order. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just a sort of degeneracy of humour that you're getting at this point. It's a bit like with punk, you know, eventually sort of punk degenerates into a certain sort of quirkiness, you know, coloured sort of rimmed glassesness that you get, you know, with the fabulous poodles and groups with names like the Dickies or whatever. It's just mm. like where something is just lost, especially in, in British hands. Everything just becomes sort of quirky in a dismally British, deeply, yeah. deeply unfunny way. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, clearly people must have, you know, this is, it, this must have been sort of programmed and designed, you know, to push certain buttons or whatever, and people would have gone out and bought it, but God knows who. Mm. It is really and, weird, isn't it? And God help us as, as a country and a species. <laughs> I don't think it well uh, I wouldn't go that far it's just it's just a sort of a bit of an inexplicable thing and it is just really sort of mm. uh, again it's kind of it's quite nothingy in in a in a, a completely different way to wet 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 but but nonetheless um I mean I don't know it's this, this it's kind is of, dry it's, dry dry is what we're saying it, it's mm. kind of less than some of its parts isn't it really because yes, yeah, it I said, Kim Wilde lovely and and brilliant um, yeah, Mel Smith uh, you know funny Funny guy, uh, you know, who's who's an intelligent, funny guy. He was my favourite character on Not the Nine O'clock News. And this is a good song, isn't it? Duff. Isn't it a good song? If you like that yeah, sort of thing, in yeah. place in the right hands. Yeah, but, you um... know, but it's that's the thing is it? It just kind of doesn't. So yes, mm. let's. So the video, which is what we get here, is just kind of. I just watched it in kind of bafflement. Like, is it? Is, so it's it's meant to be funny because it's a comic relief single, but mm. there's just no. 
I don't really get it. There's a kind of thing. There's they're sort of trying to play on the thing of like how Kim Wilde is is you know this radiant pop star who looks like Marilyn Monroe's little sister mm. in a sort of 1950s dress and and is sort of skipping around a, a 1930s semi and yeah. Mel Smith with a big teddy boy quiff uh, who is a you know a large a large pudding of a man um, who mm. who um, is and it, it's meant to be that it's funny because uh, yeah. he's he's not as attractive as her and. She's yes. sort of going, oh dear, look at the state of you, and uh, yeah, and then there's kind of some so guess what they're doing together. Yeah. So what? Okay, but you know, and then this is it's curiously sort of joyless, isn't it? There, there's yeah. So they um yeah, I mean they open the door. There's various kind of guest stars, which is what you would expect in a in a comic relief thing. Mm. But that's a kind of procession of, of pointlessness as well. It's um yeah. so you get curiosity killed the cat. As carol, up, as carol singers, as carol singers. By this time, curiosity killed the cat. They were on a bit of a downward. Uh, slant. Oh, I mean, they they come back in the in the early nineties, but in comparison to Wet Wet Wet, they are yesterday's men. Mm. They've mm. come straight back down, y'all, if you will. Mm. Yeah, I wonder so, if even in nineteen eighty seven there'd have been people struggling to recognise them. Actually, well, um, I, I had to I had to look it up. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there's some spitting image puppets who are apparently of uh, Bette Midler and Tina Turner. So there's yeah, which mm. really threw me because I thought, what's Dee Schneider out of Twisted Sister doing there? <laughs> <laughs> And and yeah, and then there's the the Mekon apparently. Yes. Kind of lying yes, lying the around Mekons the house watching the teller. Yeah. A- apropos of nothing, it's really odd. It's like a kind of complete mm. non sequitur, isn't it? The whole thing. Yeah, mm. and then Griff Reese Jones pops out from under the stairs and gets shoved back yeah. in again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because in the video, the, the the full video which we don't see is uh, is Smith and Jones doing that staring at each other over a table thing, and then all of a sudden Kim Wilde appears in Griff Reese Jones's place. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and inexplicably yeah. a big up for for Rolf Harris, which of course was fine at the time, but has oh, not yes. aged well. No, <laughs> yeah, it's nothing worse than just being prodded with a comedy stick the whole time, which is uh, mm. you know what this video is trying to do. It's just um, uh, you know it's intensely annoying. Um, but the, I mean, I mean, obviously to say that they're not the young gods is is very much an understatement. <laughs> Whether they've raised more money if they'd released. New de la Lune by Young Gods in all its imperious glory, I suppose is a debatable point. But um, even now, even with something like this, you are it's infected by this idea of like you know the great sort of classical gracious soul past or whatever, in which you know we're in a sort of permanent state of um, in, uh, inferiority in 1987. It's even something like this, you know, that idea is is coming through. Well, because they're, they're trying to be American, aren't they? You know, mm. they're having oh yeah, they make yeah. they make mention of the fact that they're eating pumpkin pie and root. Beer and all that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set in one of those old school houses that was beloved of uh, videos of the early eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is our house in the middle of our street, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. But again, you know, with, with the whole charity thing, it was obviously the you know, Band Aid nineteen eighty four, Live Aid nineteen eighty five, then Comic Relief, and this. You know, you would think that the nation was sort of steeped in a kind of newly fashionable sort of yeasty sort of benevolence, but they still vote for bloody Thatcher, didn't they? Early <laughs> in the year? Even when they put up Neil Kinnock, something that inoffensive. <laughs> yeah. Do you think people were buying this then out of? Was it just like the thing that you did? It's like, well, this is the Comic Relief single, so you, you're gonna you're gonna buy it because it's for charity, and that's just what you do. I think that's what they were wanting you to do. Mm. Mm. By 1987, Kim Wilde's been pushed away from being the new wave influence pop kid to uh, she's now become the sultry fox troll. Yeah, and it's paid off because she had a number two this time last year with "You Keep Me Hanging On," Tune. and she also did a duet with Junior early in the year, which got to number six. But um, 
this era isn't what we remember Kim Wilde for, no. is it? No. I can imagine that she'd get drunk on the tube or something on the late night train and start singing. Yeah. Oh, I'd so. forgotten about that. That was so wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That was. She just yeah. seems yeah. so kind of charming and lovable, doesn't she? Yeah. Mm. And of course, the charity single is still very much a thing in 1987 and would be for many years to come. I mean, uh, Ferry Eight was the big charity single of the year. Got to number one for three weeks in April of this year. Yeah. And uh, Kim Wilde was on that as well. Yeah. Mm. I think they tried to do one for Elephant Aid and. By that point, I think charity fatigue really said, "It's like fuck it, not the fucking elephants." Mm. Oh, mm. You get the kind of you do get a sort of saturation point, but there, there were quite a lot of comic relief songs, weren't there? Should we talk about the damage that comic relief had wrought upon the charts throughout the nineties and beyond? <laughs> Go on then. So yes, nineteen ninety one was the mm. stonk by Hailing Pace, which got to number one. Nineteen ninety two, I want to be elected by Smear campaign, which got to number nine. Nineteen ninety three. Stick It Out by Right Said Fred Ooh. got to number four. 1994, absolutely fabulous by the Pet Shop Boys, Jennifer Saunders and Joanna Lumbleth, mm. number six. Mm. 1995, Love Can Build a Bridge by Cher, Chrissy Hine, Nenna Cherry and Eric Clapton, number one. 1999, When the Going Gets Tough by Boyzone, mm. number one. <laughs> 2001, Uptown Girl by Westlife, number one. 2003, Spirit in the Sky by Gareth Gates and the Kumars, number one. 2005, All About You, McFly, number one. 2007, Walk This Way by the Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud, number one, and so on and so on. And I, so I mean, on. the worst thing is almost the insult to engines, you know, the, the mitigating factor in this is where it's all for charity. But of course, mm. you know, not to put a little hat on, but, you know, charity is a very, very 19th century way of dealing with, like, any issue of gross social inequality or whatever. And come the sort of 21st century and you're getting really heavy hitters, you know, get, or even if someone like Tom Jones or whatever on some sort of mm. uh, fundraiser, and he's worth two or three hundred million. And he said, oh, we're trying to go a big push now. We're going to try and push towards the 20 million mark. So like, tell you what, we'll give mm. nothing. You just give 50 million and just try and get by on the rest of, like, you know, what you earn. Mm. And if, like, you know, it's it's nonsense like that, you know, and you too, you know, like constantly kind of banging the sort of drum, you know, for various causes or whatever, but not paying their taxes. And this should be an issue of mm. taxation, not sort of people putting their hands in their pockets. And therefore, it isn't a coincidence that, you know, whilst everybody's full of like feeling, you know, like generosity and feeling good about themselves about sort of putting putting a few coins in a, in, in a bucket or whatever, they're still bloody mm. voting for Thatcher. Mm. So the following week, rocking around the Christmas tree nipped up three places to number three, where it spent two weeks. The follow-up, a cover of The Beatles' Help with Banana Rama and La La Nini Nu Nu, <laughs> also got to number three for two weeks in March of 1989. What did comedy do to deserve this? At number 17 in the charts, the band who are currently on tour and have done a great new version of a classic Cole Porter song called Every Time We Say Goodbye. Here's Simply Red. (laughs) 
Davis, on the balcony surrounded by more trainee bank clerks who can't do up their fucking ties properly, tells us that we're going to be treated to another cover version. Ooh, this time, it's Every Time We Say Goodbye by Simply Red. We've already covered Simply Red in chart music number 22, and this, their ninth single, is the follow-up to Maybe Someday, which only got to number 88 in August of this year. It's a cover of the 1944 Cole Porter song, which had never charted in the UK before, and it's the fourth cut from their second LP, Men and Women, which got to number two in the LP charts in March, and it's up this week from number 33 to number 17. Now, neither of your two have done Simply Red yet, so uh, Mm. let me just kick off by a simple question. Are Simply Red the Kenniest band in all pop music history? The Kenniest. The Kenniest. By that I mean, yes. is, can anybody name a member of Simply Red who isn't Mick Hucknall? Ah. No, this is bothering me the other day. I mean, Coldplay are also very much like that, famously, but um, but yeah. Um, but yeah. I can name all of Coldplay, but... <laughs> There, okay. uh, there you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's me. You go there. I mean, if you were a Nazi war criminal still mm. going around in the mid eighties, being a member of Simply Red would be, you know, would be a good move, wouldn't it? That's right. Yeah, Martin Borman on keyboards. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I, didn't they? Ch- they they changed the lineup quite a bit, didn't they? I mean, it was basically it was mm. it was him and, and and some other. But yes, you you do make a good point. I could not. Mm. Under any circumstances, name another member of Simply Red. No wonder there were people like my mate at college who really thought that Mick Hucknall's first name was Simpler. <laughs> <laughs> Simply and the Reds. And here, if you're in Simply Red, you're not even being asked to go on top of the pops this time, are you? Because no. this no. time it's just Mick Hucknall in a suit... Uh, which makes him look like Lino out of Thundercats at a christening. Mm. Uh, and there's a female cellist, and there's a bloke on the piano who might be in Simply Red, but I don't fucking know because no fucker knows who else is in Simply Red. It's what we've been talking about throughout this series, this idea of like soul veneration being the kind of sort of defining note of the time. And Mick Hutton and Simply Red, they got famous through covering the Valentine Brothers and he's too tight to mention. Yeah. Pointlessly. Um, and again, all he seems to be saying is, oh, there was, there was such great soul music, there was such a sort of classical and gracious times, you know, past times, and I'm just this pasty, you know, twat. Um, why? <laughs> what is the point of all of this? You know, but nonetheless raking in the ackers on a sort of industrial scale. And then, you know, that, that's signified here by hiring in the, um, you know, the, the classical instruments or whatever, you know, as if, you know, you mm. can sort of, you know, denote style and grace as if it's something you can sort of hire by the hour. I mean, they're looking yeah. at him pretty homicidally, actually, as if to yes. say, you know, you can imagine, like, you know, t- you know 20 takes, you know, I want, I want to get it right, you know, take 20. And so it's like, look, you can't, we got it right from the start, you know. <laughs> um, but, um, you know. What can you say? What the hell is happening with his hair? He looks like he's sort of... That's just his hair, some David. Sort of, That's no, it's new kind wave, of the no, point. Yeah, but it's half, half of it is looks like he's some sort of new wave of heavy metaler who's decided to mm. recant and has shaved off 
half of it on one side, and then um, he's run out of batteries on his clipper. He's going for a Philoki, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he, something he's like Phil that. He's Phil Blokey. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like the cover of Kylie's first album, where she's got one of those, you know, the, the, the hat yes. with the open, whatever you call them, yes. and it's all swept swept over to one side, like some... Some noodles falling off a plate in, in slow motion. At this time, Mick Hucknall's going around telling everyone that he's the greatest singer-songwriter in the UK, but he's leaning hard on the cover versions. I mean, mm. their second album, Men and Women, it's got three cover versions on mm. it. It's got this, mm. it's got something by Bunny Whaler, and it's got Let Me Have It All by Sly and the Family yeah. Stone. So it's like, what are you yeah. going on about here, Mick? Exactly, yeah, but, but plonking his own stuff alongside it as if it sort of ranks in the same order. Mm. But this is the dawning of the whack out a slow cover version for Christmas trend, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Of course, there's When I Fall in Love by Rick Astley that's out at the minute at number two. Mm. Uh, There's also Love Letters by Alison Moyet. Other cover versions in the top 40 this week are Some Guys Have All the Luck by Maxi Priest, Mm. Never Can Say Goodbye by The Communards, and of course, What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For by Chicken Stephen. But having said that, we are a long way away from Mad World and all that shit. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. But, you know, basically, Simply Reds were definitely not the young gods, and right down there in the sort of <laughs> debauched culture bunkers, whatever, you know, would have been utterly disdainful of all of this and felt like we're almost like humanity divided into sort of two separate species. Oh, David. It's just perverse. It's just like, you know, I'm sure that Mick Hucknall would be the first to say, of course, I could never do justice to um, Sarah Vaughan's version of this. Well, then, don't even try. Step aside. Mm. Let us listen to Sarah. You know, don't defile the world with your inferior effort. Yeah. The last thing the world's going to say, of course, I think I brought qualities to it that people like Sarah Vaughan just weren't, weren't capable of reaching. Just like, mm. so why are you doing this? Why are you inflicting this on us? I'm not sure that he would say that, actually, because um, one thing you can say about Mick Hucknall <laughs> is that I... I, I don't know, maybe he would, but um, having uh, recently read David Bennon, our chum, hi Dave, interviewed him and did a Baker's Dozen on The Quietus, which is where a musician um, uh, chooses their kind of 13 favourite records. And it's interesting when people do, do the Baker's Dozen thing or anything like that, where it's musicians talking about other people's music, because I think it always speaks to their character if they've got a lot to say about the work of other yeah. people, because, you know, not everyone does. Yeah. And, you know, he you can tell he's a real fan, he's a real lover of music, and he knows a lot about yeah. it, and he's the enthusiasm and the kind of respect and thoughtfulness that comes across in this is, is, uh, is quite palpable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, covers, you can... I've often kind of been bemused at the idea of, like, yeah, why Why would you bother? You know you're not bringing anything new to it. It is going to be inferior. But I don't know. It just occurred to me when you were when you were saying that, like, why, why would anyone, you know, what, what the fuck are you doing? Just sit down and, and shut up. I wonder if the compulsion to do it is something in, uh, something you could compare to the sort of tradition of folk songs where it's passed down from one generation to another and people maybe bringing something new to it, maybe not, but mm. making sure that it's still heard. And there must be so many songs that I've heard for the first time through a cover version. And maybe that's not the ideal way to mm. do it. But, you know, then you go and you seek out the original. And, and it is kind of keeping things in, in the consciousness. There's a sort of gateway argument there, which is fair enough. Let's put the, when they would say, if you are going to do a cover, though, cover it the way that Soft Cell covers Tainted Love or whatever, mm. or a certain ratio covers Shack Up, or Talking Heads cover Al Green's Take Me to the River, you know bring something formally and significantly different, you know, and there's a sort of faithfulness about this cover that um, that I kind of find cloying and annoying and pointless. However, with my whole thing about Mick Hucknall, there's a big Alan Sh- 
Shearer type. But, <laughs> but um, the, the, with the Valentine brothers, they have got no complaints whatsoever about um, McNuttall covering money's too tight to mention because they got very nicely looked after on that one. Thank you very much. Yeah, money suddenly got baggy and loose for them, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, money got very loose indeed, yes. I mean, like every single Simply Red performance of the era, it's, it's a reminder that McNuttall can sing a bit. That's what we're supposed to take away from all this. And here he is with a, a thoughtfully wrapped gift that you could put under the, the Christmas tree of your record collection. But that became the sort of death of soul in the end, the fact that it was reduced to a set of like learned gymnastic you know, vocal movements. Mm. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's quite in comparison to Marty Pello, who's, who's, um, whose singing is, is, quite, um, is, quite, is quite studied. I think that it, there's this kind of effortlessness about uh, Mick mm. Hucknall's performance here, where, you know, he, yeah, he knows what he's doing and he's very relaxed and mm. confident in, in his ability. And, you know, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. that it, it probably doesn't add very much to anything but his own wallet, but he's good. Mm. He's a good singer and this is a great song. And, you know, what are yeah, you going to do? Yes. What are you going to do? Simply Red were extremely erratic in the charts round about this time. It wouldn't be until the early 90s with stars and all that lot that they really bedded in mm. as, a, as a regular chart-busting act. Mm. And of course, if, if Mick Cocknell's to be believed in, uh, in his interviews at this moment, the song really should be called Every Time We Say Goodbye, I Go Off and Shag Someone Else. <laughs> he, he, does, he does have <laughs> quite a reputation as, as a... As a notorious shagger, mm. I've heard so many mixed mixed things about Mick Hucknall. So I, um, my my Facebook, which is a reliable repository of, of pop anecdote and scurrilousness, and said, "What what's so Mick Hucknall then?" And uh, various people seem to have you know had brushes with him. Um, mm. And someone said that they'd uh, they'd nicked a cab from under his nose once in Manchester while he was distracted chatting up some ladies. Ooh. So that was a good effort. Someone else said that um, she'd ended up in a, um, a queue behind him at an airport or something and was stunned by uh, how fancyable he was. So oh, really? there you go. Yeah, just like I never knew and, and in the flesh it's undeniable. Right. He's a sexy motherfucker. So mm. there you go. Some people just got it. Mm. I, mean, I, think, I think history will probably be kind to him. I think overall. he's kind to him now, actually. It's kind of being kind to him now. Yeah. I mean, and, and the thing about, you know, whether or not someone is a, a horny blighter or a kind of cheesy twat or a, you know, that's kind of, you hope that's going to burn off in the end and then what's left is, is you know, what is the work, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of give him a pass for um, holding back the years. Like yeah. if if that had been the if they'd been a one hit wonder and that had been it I mean you would really that would kind of mm. resonate through the decades wouldn't it best, really? the, the best song so the following week every time we say goodbye jumped six places to number eleven where it stayed for two weeks the follow up I won't feel bad would only get to number sixty eight in March of nineteen eighty eight but they roared back in early nineteen eighty nine when the LP A New Flame spent seven weeks at number one and yielded three top twenty singles, including a coverer I'd see another cover of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes as If You Don't Know Me By Now, which got to number two for three weeks in April of this year, held off number one by Eternal Flame by the Bangles. But how strange the change from major to minor every time we say goodbye. 
Right then, let's just leave this here because I'm feeling a bit queasy. I can't go on with this episode. It's fucking (laughs) awful. Come and join us, Pop Craze Youngsters, for part three when we see if this bag of cat's arsehole stinks a little less minging. Thank you, Sarah B. Keep holding on. Thank you, David Stubbs. Keep the faith. My name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. Sharp music. Great. <laughs>